Welcome to you today. I'm Paul Peppis, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Shaniqua Roach, Assistant Professor of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies. She joined the faculty at the University of Oregon in 2017. Roach earned her PhD in Performance Studies with certificates in African American and Diaspora Studies, Gender and Sexuality Studies, and Critical Theory from Northwestern University. Roach's research lies at the intersections between black feminisms, queer studies, performance studies, and post-civil rights era black popular culture. Thanks, Shaniqua, for coming on the show. Thank you so much for the invitation. So first, your degree is in performance studies. Yes. Tell us about that field. What is performance studies and what attracted you to it? I like to describe performance studies as a cross between anthropology and theater which means that we study and examine the socio-political implications of staged and everyday performance. And was attracted to performance studies because of the capacity for performance studies to allow me to engage in <laughs> critical conversations across disciplines and across aesthetic genres. So. I did a BA and an MA in English literature, and I was bound pretty, pretty specifically to textual sources, so black women's novels, and I was specifically tracing histories of black female sexual subjugation and sexual agency in the context of canonical black feminist novels. So Toni Morrison Sula was a real entry point into my research and tracing the figure of a black wayward woman who was engaging in sexuality or sexual practices um, in ways that alienated her from community. So I wanted to trace those embodied articulations of sexual agency, both within and beyond um, literature. So goodness, I wanted to have the tools and skills to engage with black women's performances in popular culture. So film and popular music especially. So performance studies is a field um, that allowed me to harness specific tools so that I could read film in formal ways, so that I could read popular music in formal ways, but in ways that specifically centered embodied knowledge and black women's um, embodied performances across different modes of address. So um, all of that work is now uh, going into this uh, monograph that you're working on, which is called Black Sexual Sanctuaries. Mm -hmm. So tell us about the, give us an um, overview of that project. I'll talk about the overview of the project, um, but it stems from the dissertation, so mm -hmm. I'll start there. Mm -hmm. So in the dissertation, I was looking at post-civil rights era performances of black women's sexuality that both exposed and resisted specific state-sanctioned infringements on black women's erotic lives. So in each chapter of the dissertation, I paired a specific performance, so film, literature, or popular music with a public policy that was indicting um, black women's sexual agency, autonomy, and sexual freedom in particular ways. So one chapter, for example, paired Pam Greer's black exploitation films and her embodied performances of sexuality therein with public policies in the context of the 60s and 70s. So I was specifically looking at a really infamous report, the Moynihan Report, um, which, was a, which was a report um, produced by a sociologist come politician. And he was specifically tracing um, or questioning really 
why black folks had acquired black freedom. Um, his definition of black freedom was citizenship. So lots of impediments to black citizenship were lifted with the Voting Rights Act of 65, the Civil Rights Act of 64, but black folks still had not achieved, still have not achieved social, political, and economic parity with whites. So, you know, in this document, and it was produced for the Department of Labor specifically, um, he's interrogating what I would characterize as this paradox. So black people finally have their freedom with voting rights in 65, yet black people still aren't socially, political, and politically and economically free. So, goodness, he's tracing legacies of slavery that have produced institutional inequalities and does a really great job of doing so in the report, but he ultimately comes to the conclusion that um, we can chalk these disparities to um, what he characterizes as a tangle of pathology. So the ubiquity of female-headed households, so black female-headed households in black communities. So, you know, we have, according to him, black matriarchs who are running out, um, proper black patriarchs who would be in the home supporting families and um, economically and imparting proper morals to children. Um, but no, black women are running away black men and raising illegitimate children poorly. So what the state should do, he suggests in the context of this report, um, is to abdicate responsibility for black mothers and black women specifically. And that report is a specific indictment of black women's reproductive abilities, but also connected to that, their sexual agency and sexual freedom. So he posits as a solution, um, goodness, the stabilization of black female-headed households. So let's take, a well, take away welfare or state-sanctioned support um, and give black folks the opportunity to organize themselves in these into proper heteropatriarchal familial structures. So that to him is the solution. And that's 65 and that report had a host of consequences, um, socially, politically, economically, but it basically spurred a number of political initiatives that ended with um, drastic changes to the U.S. welfare system as we knew it. So it culminated with, um, goodness, the 1996 Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act. Um, yeah, which made drastic changes to welfare system, including imposing a five-year timeline on the amount of time folks, um, poor folks could collect welfare. Um, so that was initiated really with the Mooneyhan Report, and this is roundabout, but I pair Pam Greer's black exploitation film work with that report because where Mooneyhan, so this politician says that black women are the primary impediments to black social, political, and economic freedom, Pam Greer disproves that thesis um, with her performance work in the context of black exploitation films. So, Black exploitation films are black action films, um, which were really popular in the 1970s. And they're rather simplistic plots, so looking at black urban inner city life, um, goodness, and black people resisting white power structures um, that are impeding black people's ability to be socially, politically, and economically free. And what Pam Greer is often doing in the context of these films is adopting the role of a sex worker um, or a sexually transgressive woman 
in order to get close to crime mob and prostitution rings um, or various state actors, so police forces, um, et cetera, in order to seek vengeance on those who have harmed her loved ones as well as broader communities. So, I mean, through her performance work, she posits black women's sexual agency and freedom as the ultimate pathway to black communal freedom. So how, um, how have earlier black feminist scholars read these black exploitation films? They haven't read them exactly as you have read them, right? No, I mean, so a lot of folks have looked at Pam Greer's black exploitation films and specifically her embodiments of sex workers oftentimes, and they have read these performances, um, goodness, as mere reiterations of negative sexual stereotypes of black women, um, which are ubiquitous in dominant culture and have historically served as justification for the sexual exploitation of black women under slavery and even the de denial of welfare resources um, from 1965 onwards. So what I'm talking about with the Moynihan Report. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I acknowledge that yes, Pam Greer certainly reinforces negative sexual stereotypes of black women as um, goodness always already ready um, to be sexually active in particular ways. Um, always already embodying dangerous reproductive potential vis-a-vis -vis her sexuality, but she's also demonstrating black female sexuality as a really important communal resource. So, I mean, sexuality for her in these films is about accessing pleasure that she's being denied um, in the public sphere, but also um, cultivating, goodness, these loopholes of retreat. And that's a phrase from Harriet Jacobs' mm -hmm. Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. But you know, ways of working within the system to get access to necessary social and material resources um, that she needs in order to survive and that the community needs in order to survive, thrive and seek revenge in particular ways. Mm -hmm. So, yes. So, what a, say a little bit more about the sort of force of the critique that comes out of an ideal of black female respectability that says, um, yeah, okay, there's examples of female agency here, female sexual agency, but the risk of reinscribing these mm -hmm. uh, stereotypes of mm -hmm. sort of uh, uh, uncontained black uh, sexual power mm -hmm. or, or sexual activity uh, outweighs any possible benefits of um, this, these uh, articulations of black female uh, erotic agency. Mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you address that concern? Hmm, that's an important concern. Um, I guess with that, I look at a trans-historical black female respectability politics um, as a comparable instantiation of black female sexual agency. Mm -hmm. So the two for me, um, so a wayward uncontained performance of black female sexuality vis-a-vis -vis the performance of a sex worker and a performance of black female respectability, um, proper womanhood, those two things aren't diametrically opposed, but rather both instantiations of black women's ability to, I'd like to say, deploy the body's erotic potential in ways to access necessary resources um, for black communal survival. And in the history of black feminist scholarship, so contemporary black feminist scholars, have called attention to the ways in which a black female respectability politics adopted in the late 
was it 19th century specifically by the National Association of Colored Women. Um, so this is 1896. So goodness, these black women's club groups um, emerged to combat negative sexual stereotypes of black women, um, which led to a host of material consequences. So the institutionalized, institutionalized rape of black women under slavery, but the ongoing rape of black women post-emancipation. Um, so they formed these groups to combat negative sexual stereotypes and adopted a black female politics of respectability to combat these stereotypes. So if black women are positioned as hypersexual, we're going to show through dress, mannerisms, comportment that we can be the most proper ladies. So that was a really important strategy of resistance. It combated particular stereotypes, but over time, um, that performative strategy, that resistive strategy, has functioned to limit black women's sexual agency in particular contexts. So black female respectability as a performance becomes the one and only way that black women can resist. Um, that resistance strategy does not work in every single context. Um, and it really functions to, <laughs> goodness, I'd say, subjugate other instantiations and articulations of black women's sexual agency. So black feminist scholars have pointed to um, the silencing of queer black women within, um, yeah, I would say, cultures of black female respectability or performances of black female respectability. Um, that deny the possibility for other articulations of sexuality and sexual resistance um, to be palatable or worthy um, or effective. So you also talk in the book about um, more recent uh, black female hip hop performers mm -hmm. like Lil' Kim and, and Nicki Minaj. So tell us a little bit about the argument of that part. The argument of that part. So those figures actually don't make it into the book project. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, okay. which is fine. Um, goodness, and in fact, you asked a question and I went round about, but <laughs> Black Sexual Sanctuaries is a book project. Um, is trying to reread um, black feminist histories of silence, um, materially and immaterially, to think about how black women have articulated sexual agency within quiet spaces. So spaces that we wouldn't normally look to um, as sites of sexual freedom. So I'm curating really interesting um, and different archives in the context of the book manuscript. So I'm looking at black women's quilting, mm -hmm. specifically Faith Ringgold's quilting. Mm -hmm. I am actually looking at performances of black female respectability um, to read for erotic agency in mm -hmm. ways that we've not done historically. So with that, I'm looking at 19th century black women's friendship albums and specifically reading for articulations of black lesbian desire and sexual agency in that context. And goodness, I go up to, and this is something I looked at in the dissertation, but the performances of black neo soul women. So mm -hmm. there we get musical performers. So mm -hmm. I'm looking at folks like Lauren Hill, Erica Badu, and Jill Scott. So folks who have been positioned as respectable historically because they have investments in domesticity mm -hmm. and black heterosexuality as an important site of reprieve and erotic sanctuary. But I'm looking at that in the context of the 1990s and against political structures that are valorizing outness, um, goodness, queer outness specifically, and publicity as the ultimate sites of sexual freedom 
without accounting for the ways in which race, class, gender, and sexuality congeal um, to shape and foreclose possibilities for sexual freedom for various folks in the public sphere. So that's the work that Black Sexual Sanctuaries is doing. So trying to rethink um, histories of sexual agency and freedom and to compel us to think differently um, about the paradigms and the approaches that we're usually using to approach particular um, sites and articulations of sexuality, sexual agency, and sexual freedom. So you're, you just talked about your work with the Soulquarians and you, you um, you look at these black exploitation films. Mm -hmm. So you're, one of your uh, archives or one of the groups of archives that mm -hmm. you study is black popular culture. Yes. You and I saw a lecture la yesterday where yeah. there was a, some um, disrespecting of popular <laughs> culture, let's say. Wh why, is, why is studying popular culture um, something that needs to be done? Why is, why is popular culture worth or worthy of academic study? I mean, popular culture incredibly, is incredibly worthy of academic study. I want to ground this as an, in an example. So I've historically taught a hip-hop feminisms class. Mm -hmm. um, very attractive to students for various reasons. Mm -hmm. Folks are typically coming into my courses very excited to talk about their favorite rappers. So they don't think that we're going to take critical approaches to hip hop, mm -hmm. but for, I want to just say mainstream students, um, goodness, hip hop, but popular culture generally um, is a paradigmatic site in which folks are engaging ideas about blackness, um, about race, about gender, about class, about sexuality. So it's a really important repository um, for dominant, um, goodness, and I would say subordinate ideologies. Um, so it profoundly influences and shapes the ways in which we're thinking about, um, yeah, power, race, class, gender, sexuality, freedom, subjugation, various things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you're, I mean, I guess we're, I'm, I want to ask a sort of version of the question I asked before, which is, um, how is it that these works of popular culture, that because they're produced by the culture industry, mm -hmm. um, traffic in certain kinds of negative stereotypes, mm -hmm. how can the uh, creators of this popular culture how, how do they leverage those stereotypes to critique them? How does that dynamic work? How can they manage that? Can you give us an example of how that gets managed or successfully works? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I want to say popular culture, before I answer the question, is an imperfect site, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So um, with performance studies, that's a lens that's, that allows me to read for um, black women's embodied articulations of various things. So. I look at a figure like Nicki Minaj and I've written on a performance um, of Barbie and she often adopts this persona of Barbie that she did in a music video called Stupid Ho. Very lovely. Um, so in the context of this video, um, she is using technology and her body to parody Barbie and white beauty standards in particular ways. So I mean she has on a blonde or pink wig um, but her eyes are bulging in particular ways. So we're not meant to view this performance of black femininity or this parody of white femininity as something to which black or women of color should aspire. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, that's one strategy. Um, technology embodied performance, but these things can always already be co-opted, you know? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. 
goodness, um, the agency she has to disrupt particular stereotypes um, is limited and liminal. Mm -hmm. So that's something that I recognize and that performance studies gives me the tools to recognize. Um, so yes, I'm never tracing a stable articulation of black female sexual or gender resistance. So I mean, across various sites and chapters, um, I'm looking at lived experiences, material conditions, and political structures that allow um, and disallow certain forms of agency and critique of stereotypes. So tell us about some of the other, um, you, you mentioned this uh, hip hop class. Mm -hmm. What are some of the other courses that you have taught or, or are seeking to teach? So I'm teaching black feminist histories this quarter. So that's taking a pre-civil rights era approach to black feminism. So tracing black women's pre-1965 intellectual traditions and cultural productions that are, um, yeah, interfacing with various freedom struggles. So I mean, looking at black women in the context of the communist movement, such as Claudia Jones. Um, looking at black blues women who are articulating a desire to migrate out of the South, not for economic reasons, but in search of sexual freedom. We're reading canonical black feminist scholars such as Angela Davis and also looking at novels, um, goodness, by folks such as, and this is not a novel, but a slave narrative by Harriet Jacobs, so Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. Mm -hmm. In the spring, I'll teach black feminist theories, so that's a more conventional approach to black feminism, so that's looking at the institutionalization of black feminism in the academy, so post-1977, so that's after the production of the Combahee River Collective Statement, um, which is the first manifesto, if you will, um, that characterized black feminist politics that codified black feminist politics in particular ways. So with that class, we'll look at the development of black feminist thought proper post-1977. I'll also teach a black queer studies course in the spring. So that's a rather traditional approach to the field of black queer studies. So how it's taken shape since the 2000s. And I'll also teach courses in black popular culture. So I envision teaching a black feminist literary and visual cultural studies course next year. Can you say a little bit about what might be in that class? The, the Black visual? feminist, literary yeah. and visual cultural studies. So with that one, it's taking an approach to black feminisms that is looking at um, popular culture, aesthetics, um, as a site for the production of feminist theory. So in that class, we'll likely look at visual work by folks like Kara Walker, mm -hmm. um, filmic work by folks like Dee Rees, who I've written on. So she produced the film Pariah, mm -hmm. um, which was one of the first, is the first black lesbian um, coming of age stories in the context of a filmic production. And in terms of literary narratives, we'll look at yeah, canonical black women's writings. So, I mean, folks like Alice Walker, Gloria Naylor, um, Toni Morrison. Mm -hmm. So next year, you are organizing a speaker series mm -hmm. uh, uh, on black feminist speakers. Um, tell us a little bit about that series. What's the conception? Who might you be getting? What, do you, what are your goals? Yeah, so with that, um, it's consistent with a desire to build black studies at the University of Oregon more generally and to build black feminist studies within the context of women's gender and sexuality studies, um, at UO specifically. So the series is um, looking at black feminist scholarship um, in the 21st century and black feminist activism and black feminist cultural production 
and specifically black feminist work that is, um, yeah, advocating for social, political, economic, environmental freedoms, so a host of freedoms. So I'm bringing in four black feminist scholars who are doing work on various fronts. So one black feminist scholar, Erica, Edward, who was, Erica Edwards, who was looking at um, black feminism and the war on terror. So what black feminist literature can do um, to challenge, expose, and critique the war on terror in particular ways. I am bringing another black feminist scholar, Jennifer C. Nash, and she is looking at um, intersectionality. So black feminist keyword and the way in which that's been taken up in women's gender and sexuality studies, um, sometimes to the detriment of acknowledging the intellectual contributions of black women. I'm bringing another scholar, Emily Owens, and she's looking at histories of black women's sexual agency under slavery. So various folks doing various things under the rubric of black feminism as a pathway to freedom. Really interesting, really Thank interesting. You. So we just have a couple of minutes left. Um, I might get two questions in, but the first is, um, is there anything, uh, any um, uh, popular cultural text, any literary text that you've recently encountered or that you've recently worked with that you'd like to recommend to our viewers? Yes, Britt Bennett's The Mothers. Say a little bit about it. Um, goodness, it's a beautiful novel and it's tracing the experiences of a young black woman from Southern California um, who just experienced a profound loss, so the death of her mother, and she is trying to find ways to cope with that loss, um, trying to find ways to be in community with um, her Southern California folks, so she's from a small town outside of San Diego, Oceanside, um, and trying to find ways to get free um, of the communities, the community that feels very limiting for her in terms of the grief she's dealing with, um, with the passing of her mother, but also the small town ideals that people have about black women specifically, and um, the way in which they're trying to impose particular expectations around black femininity. So she wants to impose or transcend these ideologies, um, but remain connected to community in deep ways. So it's a really, really beautiful novel and beautifully tracing the experiences of contemporary black women. So my last question is, are there, you've mentioned as we've gone a number of, um, black feminist theorists and mm -hmm. writers that you mm -hmm. draw on. Are there any others uh, that you haven't mentioned that you'd like to tell us about? We've got about a minute. To, or no. Just give me a couple of names. There are even. so many, but everyone should read Audre Lorde. Everyone should read Cheryl Clark, um, June Jordan. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Good, concise, to the <laughs> point. Um, Shaniqua, thank you so much for thank talking so much. to us today about your very interesting work, and welcome to the University thank of you. Oregon and success with everything you do. Thank you so much. Um, I've been speaking with Shaniqua Roach, Assistant Professor of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at the University of Oregon. Uh, thanks so much for watching.